are listening in with Lloyd Gosling. Lloyd Gosling Rochelle and Townsend is a 30 attorney firm with a statewide practice located in Austin, Texas. We specialize in environmental, natural resource and energy regulation, litigation and employment law. My name is Lauren Kalashek. I'm managing director of Lloyd Gosling and I'm host for today's podcast. Our purpose with this podcast is really to talk to some of our practice area experts in our firm about timely topics and trends in a more informal setting and in a way that we hope can be a little bit of fun and informative for our listeners. In today's podcast, we have Nathan Vassar and Lauren Thomas with our water practice group, and they're here to discuss with us the waters of the United States and the navigable waters protection rule associated with the Clean Water Act. So with that, I will turn it over a little bit to Nathan and Lauren, maybe starting with Nathan. Tell us a little bit about your background and kind of how you got into this practice area and specifically with respect to Clean Water Act policy and environmental law. Sure. Uh, Thank you. It's great to be on and uh, we're excited to talk about this uh, really tumultuous topic. And we've had a, um, there's been a lot going on with it. You know, some of uh, my interests really go back to when I worked in policy many years ago at the uh, at the state legislature side of things. And so, um, you know, I've been with the uh, firm of Lloyd Gosling for uh, since 2012 and really enjoyed a number of the issues surrounding what is within the jurisdiction of the federal government as it relates to waters. And that impacts a number of projects. So there are a lot of moving pieces to it. And I think what's compelling is just really the reach, how far jurisdictional waters uh, reached into various critical projects for uh, clients we work for and uh, various entities around the country. All right. And Lauren Thomas, tell us a little bit about why you enjoy this practice area and a little bit of your background as well. Sure. Yeah. So I have a uh, background in science. I have a Bachelor of Science and um, I decided to go to law school because I really find the intersection of law and policy to be really interesting. When I ended up working with Lloyd Gosling, I just, I was very happy because it it combines both law and science and presents, our practice presents problems that are very complicated and um, difficult to figure out. And I find that work to be really challenging. And I think the Clean Water Act is a really good representation of what can be so challenging about environmental law, because as Nathan said, it can be tumultuous. But it's, it's an interesting time to be practicing, and there's definitely a lot to talk about. Well, great. Well, let's jump right into it. Nathan, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the Clean Water Act? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the, uh, the history of both the Clean Water Act, which we know is really in the news a lot when you think about EPA, uh, it goes back to the 1970s. But really, the history of jurisdictional waters goes back to the late late 19th century, believe it or not, and the Rivers and Harbors Act that was in place, you know, from the that period of time. And you look at the way in which Congress said uh, that the agencies at the time, or at least what the um, federal government was responsible for, was navigable streams. And so the fascinating part of the history is it goes back a long ways. With respect to what we now know as the waters of the United States rule and jurisdictional impacts, really going back to the Clean Water Act in the early 1970s, has been an evolving, a very dynamic state of what counts as jurisdictional impacts. You know, when you look at, you know, for those who you know, are really interested in some of the 
contextualism of how Congress came to define navigable waters, you look at the way that the issue of jurisdictional waters dealt with the extent to that the Commerce Clause would allow Congress to regulate commerce. There's a lot of detail we could go into, but uh, suffice it to say, in the 1990s, early 2000s, there were a couple of key cases where the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, in essence, said, look, the regulation has gone too far as far as what counts as jurisdictional. The, uh, under the guidance of the Corps of Engineers and EPA, there was an understanding that jurisdictional waters extended to not just regulation of commerce, to, but under what was called the migratory bird rule. So wherever a bird could fly, if it landed there, there's waters. That's jurisdictional. It was a case in 2001, I think it was uh, Swank. It was a uh, Illinois-based case. And then 2005, Rapanos. So the court cut back on that. But in 2005, there wasn't a whole lot of clear guidance as to what's the new rule, what's jurisdictional, what's in place. So some of the timeline here, you, you really had to look from 2005 to a decade. There was a bit un- of uncertainty of, okay, you've got jurisdictional waters that uh, clearly, it's not as broad as it used to be, but there has to be some limit. So that's when we got a rule in 2015 that really did set parameters about this distance from navigable rivers counts as jurisdictional waters. That was the 2015 Obama administration waters to the U.S. rule. You fast forward to five years later, and uh, you now see a completely different rule that looks at carving back what some of those what some of those activities would have been regulated. And so if you're confused about the timeline of this, you are in good company because a lot of people are. And what we want to really dig into today is what's the status? What does this look like? But you know, what is so interesting, and we'll talk about the implications about this, uh, is that you know, virtually any impact of streams, whether it's a tributary, whether it's a perennial stream, is going to have some question of, you know, is there a Clean Water Act 404 permit implication or 402 discharge permitting implication at, at play? And we'll get into that in a little bit. But that's a um, that's an, a very fast overview of the timeline and uh, and how this really impacts activities, whether it's developing a new project, whether it's discharging into waters, whether it's dredging up debris and when you're triggering federal involvement. Right, and so just to kind of recap that historical timeline, so we have, you know, certainly passage of the Clean Water Act in the 1970s, defining the term navigable waters to the extent of, you know, setting the jurisdiction for the Clean Water Act. And as the policies of EPA, um, you know, developed over time, they developed into what was called, as you mentioned, Nathan, the migratory bird rule, that basically said if migratory birds were at a small pond, it was jurisdictional water. So it was very broad jurisdiction as I think I understand it. But then I think you mentioned there was a case in 2001, you called it Swank. Is that Solid Waste Authority of Northern Cook County? Is that what that That's stands the one. for? Yeah, exactly. That's one, yeah. So really, yeah, the point being that since then, um, it's just been back and forth among EPA rulemakers and rulemaking and administration about the extent of the, the Clean Water Act jurisdiction post-Swank. I just kind of wanted to recap that timeline for everybody because, like you said, it is a little bit tedious, and just to repeat it again might be helpful. Lauren Thomas, so what's been kind of the most recent work of the EPA over the past several years to deal with this evolution and the changes in jurisdiction that we're seeing? 
That's a good question. EPA has been kind of swinging back and forth between what is considered under Clean Water Act jurisdiction. So the past two presidential administrations have used EPA to revise key provisions of the Clean Water Act to alter the meaning of waters of the United States. And Nathan touched on this briefly, but I do think it's important just to talk about. So under the Obama administration, EPA promulgated or made a rule and they called this the 2015 WOTUS rule or Waters of the United States rule. And this had relatively broad jurisdiction. And then recently, very recently, the Trump administration's EPA repealed the Obama administration's 2015 Waters of the United States rule and promulgated what we have today, which is called the Navigable Waters Protection Rule. And meanwhile, these rule promulgations, um, including the 2015 version of the WOTUS rule, are just held up in courts across the United States um, as states and, and, uh, and federal courts try to make sense of the language of these rules. And um, I like to think of this as a pendulum just kind of swinging back and forth between what is and what is not covered under the Clean Water Act. So Nathan, where are we with the Navigable Waters Protection Rule today? What does it say? It's interesting. Um, it's almost as important what isn't in it or what is excluded from jurisdictional waters as much as what's in it. It would be worth noting for the group that as we sit here today, the new rule, it is final. I know we may talk a little bit about procedure later, but it's final in 49 of the 50 states with the exception of Colorado where there's been a stay. And we're going to talk about some of those litigation challenges there. But what does it say? It says that, you know, as we know, this uh, navigable waters has been defined and it captures what you think of territorial seas, traditional navigable waters, your rivers, streams that are constantly flowing. Get that. It also includes certain connected uh, and really connectivity is a key issue here. A key issue, connected waters and streams to other jurisdictional waters and, and streams. And so if you've got a tributary, as long as it's a tributary that's flowing for the better part of the year, it touches another water, it's deemed jurisdictional. Same with wetlands. But the exclusions are what gets a lot of attention on this. They did preserve in the latest rule some of the categorical exclusions that have been in place for a while. And I've got with me today a copy of the exclusions that are here. They preserved the wastewater recycling exclusions and the stormwater control feature carve-outs. Those are there. But what a lot of folks are really interested in and a lot of the clients we talk with ask us about is what about ephemeral streams? Those streams that do not flow year-round, that they really only flow in response to other parts of the uh, country where you've got snowfall, where you've only got you don't have a constant flow if you look over the course of a 30-year rolling time frame. Ephemeral streams are not jurisdictional. They're carved out. They're not waters of the U.S. And so as a result, they are not regulated under waters of the United States. And so, you know, this is a, this is a key takeaway for projects, especially in more areas of the country, including here in Texas and the uh, Southwest that, um, that have you know, many streams that are, would be categorized as ephemeral. One other point on that that's worth capturing is that these are, this is an analysis of the stream as it exists. Some folks say, well, wait a second, this river that we discharge into from our wastewater plant, it would be ephemeral. It only has flow year round because we discharge into it. Well, 
that's not an ephemeral stream. It's it's either perennial or it's an intermittent stream, but you're looking at the condition as it exists, not in some hypothetical without a discharge. So there are some of the carve-outs as well that we've seen that are different from the Obama 2015 rule. You no longer have a 1,500 feet automatic inclusion of waters that are 1,500 feet from a, a nearby jurisdictional water body. It's interesting because you don't have the dry land inclusion that you would under the 2015 rule. So those are some of the highlights that I think a lot of our clients would be interested in, uh, but it's in place. And as we understand it from discussions with the Corps of Engineers and EPA, they're proceeding because it is the regulatory rule of the land uh, at this point, unless you live in Colorado. Okay, so well, speaking that it is now the, the rule of the land, so what does this mean for regulated entities, Lauren Thomas? So regulated entities can seek out something called a jurisdictional determination. Uh, We usually refer to these as JDs. A JD is an official determination of the Army Corps of Engineers as to whether the wetlands or the streams that, that a regulated entity is concerned about fall under Federal Clean Water Act jurisdiction. So there are two types of JDs. There are approved JDs and preliminary JDs. An approved JD is a final legal determination that there are or are not wetlands or streams that are under federal clean water jurisdiction on the property in question, whereas a preliminary JD is used to expedite the permitting process and the core essentially presumes that all of the wetlands and streams on the property in question are under Clean Water Act jurisdiction. And this eliminates the need for the Corps to make a site visit to the property in question, and it ultimately speeds up the process. Okay, interesting. And then, Nathan, how does the new rule apply to pending applications? We've had a lot of discussion about this. I just want to say, uh, to Lauren Thomas's point a little bit ago, the uh, jurisdictional determinations are a key tool that you know, we, we can talk about that which is pending here, and I, I want to address it, but it, they're a key tool that can be used for projects that are envisioned or planned. And as it's been noted, once you have an approved jurisdictional determination, you have the, it's valid for five years. And so if you can get it, now that takes time. And, you know, the Corps of Engineers takes a uh, an approach where they're, they can be sometimes not as expeditious as some would like in getting some JDs reviewed and completed. But once you've got it, it's good for five years. And so that's an action right now as folks are saying, well, what can I do? As Lauren so eloquently stated, that's a key part of it that will be helpful if the law changes because it could change again. As we know with this uh, pendulum that swung back and forth over time, it's likely to happen again. For those applications, for those projects that are pending, Our understanding is until uh, there's a final agency action, the Corps of Engineers or EPA is going to be looking at the now existing Waters of the U.S. Navigable Waters Protection Rule. And so that may mean some of their analysis earlier in the project when either the 2015 Obama rule was in place or after it was appealed in this little interim time in the middle when we were still awaiting this new rule to become final, they should be now analyzing it under the new under the new rule. Now, if you have a a permit application that's been finalized before June 22nd, before the rule went final, then the Corps of Engineers and EPA uh, can very well have undertaken the analysis that was in place prior to this Trump rule. So uh, again, it can be all over the map, 
But our understanding and from you know discussions with the core on this issue is if something's still pending and the core is still considering an application, you know, they're gonna they're gonna be looking at the current rule that's in place that's now gone into effect. Well, and speaking of the effectiveness of the rule, I guess that's because uh, we haven't seen any litigation that's been successful yet to stay the rule, although there's probably some that is pending, as you guys alluded to a little bit earlier in this discussion. So where are we? What is the status of any appeals of the final rulemaking here? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of litigation going on over this rule across the country. Um, as Nathan mentioned earlier, it is stayed in Colorado, in the state of Colorado. There was an attempt on June 19th of 2020 to have the rule stayed nationwide. And this is in a case, California versus Wheeler, that is currently, um, it was at the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California. And on June 19th, court denied a motion for a nationwide injunction. And so the court did allow the navigable waters protection rule to go into effect across the country. However, we've heard that this is going to be appealed to the Ninth Circuit. So it's certainly something to watch um, because depending on what happens in the Ninth Circuit could affect other states across the country, including Texas. In addition to what's going on in Colorado and California, there are at least 10 other cases across the United States that have been filed in courts. These cases allege that the Navigable Waters Protection Rule is in violation of laws such as the Clean Water Act itself um, and in violation of the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, It's really important to watch these cases as they move through the judicial process. Um, And it's something that we're keeping tabs on because this is a very fluid situation and it it could just change at any moment. And so, Nathan, how does the new rule impact entities here in Texas? From Lauren's discussion, it sounds like it's still applicable here in Texas. But what what are kind of the more specific effects for regulated entities here in our state? Yeah, it's it's a good question. It's one that it really has uh, has two short answers. One, if you've got a discharge permit, nothing should change. Two, if you're planning any type of project that may impact jurisdictional waters, that you may need to uh, do some dredging, you may need to move fill material, maybe you need, you're working on a project that will require an individual for a permit, it can have substantial impacts there because there would be less uh, mitigation involved. And, on those two points, those are the short answers, but this is a podcast and uh, we're, we're going to cover a few of the details in greater length. But as to the discharge permitting, if you have a, a TBDS permit issued by TCEQ under Delegated 402 of the Clean Water Act and Chapter 26 of the Texas Water Code, nothing should change. As I mentioned earlier, if you were discharging into a, a water course that is heavily dependent on your effluent for the flow that's there. You don't all of a sudden have, you know, we've been discussing this at great length at at our firm, uh, of would you really potentially only have a Chapter 26 state permit? And what EPA has shared and what we've seen in the Federal Register is is that that's not the case. You'll continue, TCQ will continue administrating the 402 program. Nothing should change for your discharge permitting there. With respect to, again, discharges of waste, if you have, uh, and this kind of gets to another Supreme Court case that's fascinating for a lot of us that came out of this past spring. If you have discharges not under the NPDES, TPDES program, but instead are injection 
wells than those injection wells. The water there is not confined and there's some hydrologic connection to a jurisdictional water course. Uh, you could actually see an expanded is expanded discharging regulatory regime where you might need a permit where you, previously you just had a UIC. That's a separate discussion for a separate day in, in uh, greater detail. On four projects, what impacts will it have? Again, as, as mentioned earlier, because the field has shrunk, largely because of the uh, ephemeral streams carve out, the mitigation requirements that the Corps of Engineers would impose on a 404 project will be much more significantly reduced. We've seen in some examples of one or two projects around the state a comparison of, of how much of a percentage reduction would you see if the 2020 rule had been in place when that permit was issued. And in some cases, it's you know, 40 to 60 percent less mitigation required. So in any event, that's a um, that's something that for a lot of folks, because of the cost and because of the impacts you know, to ratepayers who are funding these projects, they're interested in seeing that more limited makeup, that mitigation approach, because there's less that's impacted in the first place. But a lot of folks are hardened by the fact that you don't have some major discharge permitting change on, on that side of things. Well, yeah, and that's really, that's kind of a nice way to put it, to distill it down to those two points, right? Impacts to current dischargers and impacts to 404 permitting. Are there any other parting thoughts that you want to share, you guys want to share before we wrap up? Obviously, we'll continue to watch as events unfold with respect to the the application of the new regulation and how the litigation proceeds, but anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? There are a couple of things I think are important to note. One, a lot of folks, we always make this point, and it may seem like an academic point, but it's a very practical and realistic one, is, is that TCEQ, the state jurisdiction, is actually broader than the federal jurisdiction. That surprises a lot of people when they hear it or when they, they think about it. And and so that means, in, in many ways, the impacts of this federal change, again, does that you, you don't see those impacts as significant on Texas dischargers. The other thing I just say is, you know, we encourage folks to be active and actually do go and engage the Corps of Engineers. We've had an, just in the last month, several folks say, hey, what should I do with this? And as Lauren pointed out early on, there are ways, not just through jurisdictional determination, but, you know, with respect to ongoing projects where the, where the rules have now changed midstream, for you to line out for the Corps hey, here's what's changed, here's what's in place, you know, help us understand how you're analyzing the impacts of this new rule with respect to this area of the map, with respect to this project. Um, it can be to your advantage, it can impact both the cost and the time frame of your project. And so we encourage folks not just to watch the tennis match as it goes back and forth, but to engage and, and continue to use regulators and those who regularly work with those entities to uh, you know, impact change in your projects. All right. Well, good words to end on. So certainly I want to thank you both for being here and doing a little bit of a deep dive into the new regulation on jurisdictional waters under the Clean Water Act. Folks that want to continue to uh, keep up on this topic and any other water issues in the state of Texas, feel free to visit our website, www.lglawfirm.com and go to our water practice group page and we keep it updated uh, with current events and news and information. Thanks again, both of you. And that's it for today and hope all of our listeners have a great day. 
If you would like more information about what you've heard today, please visit lglawfirm.com. You can also find us at Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views, nor are they endorsed by Lloyd Gosling Law Firm. None of this content should be considered legal advice, as one should always consult a lawyer. This podcast is not intended for commercial purposes and is made available at no cost. Music for the podcast is from album Jazz U and is titled By the Coast 2004-2007 by Antony Brzezikov. License under the attribution non-commercial share-alike license is available on Free Music Archive. To learn more, visit by clicking the link in today's summary.